The Gospel for today comes from Luke, chapter 4. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then Jesus began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things we have heard you did at Capernaum. Then he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in that prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine all over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And there were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Creator and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I asked a question in the sermon preview this week, so you may have seen that, and that may have given you a chance to think about this in advance. But either way, I'll ask it of you now. When was the last time you got angry? Not just irritated or a little frustrated, but really, truly, deeply, and fully angry. And then, what did you do with your anger? Did you seethe quietly, roll your eyes? Did you say something in the heat of the moment that you wouldn't normally say? Did you storm out of the room so that you wouldn't say something you might regret? Did your anger feel good because you knew you were right? Did it feel productive because you finally got something out in the open? Or did it feel toxic, damaging, like something had taken over you in the midst of it, and then afterward you felt awful, remorseful, exhausted. I ask because anger is a big part of the gospel story today. 
And more than anger, rage, furious rage, the kind that erupts from us, that threatens to consume us, and frequently threatens to consume those around us too, which is very nearly what happens to Jesus. So then the question becomes, what did Jesus do about it? And what might we learn along the way? Anger isn't a new phenomenon. <laughs> it's just a part of the human condition, and it's always been with us, and it's certainly not always bad. It feels to many, though, as if we are living in a time of particularly elevated anger. You don't have to look far to see it. People erupting into frustration over mask wearing or other pandemic restrictions, while others are mad at those who remain unvaccinated. Passengers on planes having to be physically restrained or attacking flight attendants. Parents threatening school board members. There's all kinds of anger about the previous two presidential elections and the continuing reality of inequities in every level of our common life. And when you add all of this up and then multiply it by the effects of social media and a 24-hour news cycle, it starts to feel overwhelming pretty fast. A CNN poll last fall found that 74% of Americans said they were either very angry or somewhat angry most of the time. That's a lot of anger for a lot of reasons. And undoubtedly, there are plenty more that I didn't name. But anger, even in American life, isn't new. <clears throat> we once went to war against each other, after all. Early Puritan preachers spent a lot of time talking about an angry God. And our history is full of examples of anger against specific ethnic or racial or religious groups. There's also plenty of anger in the Bible. Old Testament prophets express God's wrath at the injustices and inequities which were running rampant in the life of the people of Israel. The prophets say that God isn't inherently angry, but importantly, God is not indifferent to human suffering. There are quite a few of the Psalms that give voice to human anger, all the way to some of them which ask God for vengeance on enemies sometimes in pretty harsh language. Jesus gets angry at least twice in the Gospels. Once, in a pretty well-known story, when he encounters some unfair economic practices at the temple, and he throws over the tables of the money changers who are making profits off of animals sold for sacrifice. And then another time, in kind of a lesser-known incident, when he comes across a fig tree that should be producing figs, but isn't. And out of anger, Jesus curses the tree so that it never bears fruit again. That's, that's a strange little story for another day. <laughs> but then there's today's gospel, in which Jesus barely escapes a furious mob who are trying to throw him over a cliff after hearing his very first sermon. So why that anger? What exactly happened to light that fire? We are at the beginning of Luke's gospel here, and Jesus is just starting his public ministry. 
He's been tempted in the desert by the devil, and he's come through that. And then he decides to go home, back home to Nazareth, where he goes to worship in his home congregation, the synagogue, which nurtured him as a child. He stands up in worship to read the lesson for the day. He's, he's in essence, the assisting minister. And he unrolls the scroll to read from Isaiah, what we know as chapter 61 of the book. And he reads this quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. That last bit, the year of the Lord's favor, probably refers to the ancient practice of a jubilee year, which God commanded to happen every 50th year throughout Israel. Jubilee would be a year in which all debts would be forgiven, enslaved people would all be set free, and land would be returned to its original owners. Jubilee years <clears throat> were meant to prevent generational poverty and generational slavery from becoming inescapable, to make sure that no one, no family ever got so behind in life that they could just never catch up. So Jesus reads all of that, that vision, and then he adds one more line. He says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, imagine that you are at an event where someone announces that all your debts are forgiven, that any oppression that you are experiencing is coming to an end, that your mortgage is paid, your rent is canceled, your health care is free, and your credit card balances have vanished. How would you feel? Probably not angry. <laughs> Probably not that you wanted to throw the speaker off a cliff. And indeed, the crowd is delighted at first. Wow, they say. This kid of Joseph's is really something. Now, most of us, if we got that kind of reception to a speech we were giving, well, would quit while we were ahead. But not Jesus. He keeps going. So imagine now how you would feel if the speaker who announced your freedom also announced that all the jails will be emptied and that the land you are living on will be given back to its original owners. On top of this, that financial freedom that you are being given is also being handed to your neighbor who gambles, the person who blew their inheritance on a trip to Fiji, and the brother you are estranged from because all he ever does is ask to borrow money that he never returns. In other words, this gift isn't just for you, it's for everyone, including the people who, at least in your mind, absolutely do not deserve it. Now there might be some anger. Words like unfair, irresponsible, impossible come to mind. How is this even going to work? Every system we have will fall apart. Banks will close. Businesses will be thrown into turmoil. And how are people going to have jobs if nobody has to pay any bills? 
what are we going to pay people with? This is a this is a nice idea in theory, but it's totally impractical. And I mean, forgiving my mortgage is one thing, but how would I even find out whose land my house used to be on? This isn't going to work. We got to stop this whole thing. Pretty soon everybody's looking for a cliff. When they heard this, the story says, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. What they heard from Jesus is two stories about God's love and care and protection for people who were not Israelites, and in fact, who were historically enemies of Israelites. What they heard from Jesus was that the love and the grace and the freedom of God, all of which were not just nice, warm, warm fuzzy words, but actions with real-life practical consequences, all of that didn't just belong to them or people like them. What they heard was that God simply did not care about the privileges they had built or the responsible way they lived or the rules they created or the systems that they had fashioned. What they heard what Jesus said was that God did not care what they thought they had earned. And what they did was become enraged. Scripture is clear that there is a place for anger. When our rage is directed at the injustices or inequities or the brokenness of this world, then it can be fuel for a fire we need to keep burning. Anger can be exactly what we need to wake us up and get us moving, to build the strength and the courage it takes to take apart the broken things and then put them back together again. Anger can even be the ultimate expression of empathy when you stand with another person and you trust that their experience of cruelty or unfairness or oppression or injustice, it demands your attention and action too. But what's happening in the gospel story today isn't that kind of anger. Instead, it's the rage we feel when something we thought was ours turned out to be somebody else's too. When something we thought we earned is given freely to a person who didn't do anything at all. When the careful rules we have made about getting what you deserve completely fall apart and we feel betrayed. It's the fury we feel when we work hard, but nothing happens. Well, someone else just falls into everything they wanted, or so it seems. And because there's no obvious place for our anger to go, we direct it at each other over and over and over again. On the one side is rage and fury and bitterness all the way to hatred. On this side is dismissing one another as fools or idiots or freeloaders, using language to harm all the way to real, raw violence. On the other side of this kind of anger is indifference, ignoring each other, rolling our eyes and pretending someone doesn't exist. It's a different kind of violence. It's cold instead of hot just as damaging in the end. Mm -hmm. 
somehow Jesus passes through the midst of it and goes on his way. He doesn't give in to the rage of the crowd, nor does he ignore the people who are angry. I mean, after all, this is only the first thing he does. He'll spend the next few years loving every one of these angry people all the way to the cross and the tomb until the stone is rolled away. He never backs down from his declaration that God's love cannot be earned or controlled. But he also doesn't mock or dismiss or reject the people who struggle so hard to hear that as good news. He finds a third way, a different way. One of the other readings we'll hear in in-person worship today is from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind, hopeful and determined. Love is not irritable or resentful. This letter from Paul is written not in, not in case of a wedding, which is where we frequently hear this passage. It's written to a church community full of people who are angry and resentful, who are disagreeing with each other and highly frustrated with one another. They can't agree on anything, and I mean anything. And Paul has his own frustrations with them, to be sure, but he calls them to action anyway. It doesn't really matter how they feel about each other. It matters what they do. He calls them to pass through the midst of these cold and hot rage options and find a third way. History is clear that we are not good at finding that third way by our own. When Jesus took us by the hand to lead us down that path, we tried to throw him off a cliff. And when that didn't work, we dragged him outside the city and nailed him to a cross. But love endures. Love acts. Love gets angry, to be sure, but uses that anger to build instead of destroy, to reconnect instead of turn away gospel call today is to get angry at what matters. And for the love hidden in that anger to propel us forward. So that we can pass through the midst of what is damaging and instead follow the path of life and love that we meet in Jesus. It will not be easy, but it is the life that matters, the life to which we are called. Thanks be to God for that. Amen.